Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great gift of your Son. The one who has perfectly obeyed your law, the one who has perfectly imaged you to the world, the one, Lord, who has done whatever you commanded. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that he did not consider his equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so, Lord, we somewhat oddly praise you for an instrument of brutal torture and death. Because it is by that cross, Lord, that we are saved. Lord, today we come before you as broken sinners, humbly placing ourselves at your mercy in Christ, knowing, Lord, that there is nothing of value or worth that we bring. And yet, Lord, you receive us willingly, joyfully, because of what Christ has done. So, Lord, I pray that you would grow obedience and sanctification in your people. That, Lord, as we seek your face, help us to understand your word. Lord, help us to not desire experiences and feelings, Father, but instead to delight in your word. Father, we pray for those among our fellowship who are ill, those among our fellowship who are struggling with grief, those among our fellowship who are beset by sin. Father, we pray that you would work in all of these things. Lord, this world is broken. And being sojourners here can be a painful thing. And yet, Lord, we know that it is for our good because you are using these things to increase our Christ-likeness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your scriptures today to do that very thing. Work in your people today, Lord, that we would be more like Jesus. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 35. Exodus 35. We are going to cover the final six chapters of the book of Exodus today. So I hope that you did your homework and read ahead, because I'm not going to read every single word of these six chapters. So everybody breathe a sigh of relief. We are going to hit some things, and we're going to talk about the entirety of it. When we started this book of Exodus earlier this year, it began in a way that made it seem as though the big bad of this story is going to be Pharaoh. At the end of Genesis, Israel had ended up in Egypt. 
seeking refuge from a great famine, where the Lord had sovereignly ordained one of his sons to be the highest ranking man in that kingdom, not named Pharaoh. And so they came and they stayed for a long time, hundreds of years. And over the course of their time there, they went from being highly favored to being seen as enemies because the Lord blessed them and increased their number. And so in the beginning of the book of Exodus, we're introduced to Pharaoh. He is the wicked ruler of the most powerful nation on earth. He is the one who is oppressing the people of Israel. He is the one who has made them into slaves. He is the one who is attempting to force them to murder their sons. And we see in the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Lord has heard the cries of his people and he is making a way to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And the way the story begins makes it seem like that exodus is going to be the heart of the story. But as we went through the book of Exodus, it became clear that although Pharaoh was a seemingly insurmountable villain, he was no match for the Lord. And in fact... He was totally defeated. He was dead before the book of Exodus had even reached the halfway point. If you were seeing this in a movie theater, you would be very confused when the primary villain of the story dies and you're only about 30 minutes in. Well, what are we going to do for the rest of the time? And what happens is that it becomes really clear that the true big bad of this story, and, and truthfully, of any story involving humanity, is the sinfulness of the human heart. This is made evident to us as we watched Israel immediately begin grumbling against the Lord and his chosen leader after being brought out of Egypt. They had just passed through the Red Sea on dry land had been brought out without having to lift a sword or fight a battle. And once they're out of the land of Egypt, the first thing they start doing is saying, we're hungry. We're thirsty. Why, why did the Lord bring us out here just to kill us? It was so much better back in Egypt. And from there, we watch over and over again as Israel falls into sin. And all of that culminates in Israel making and worshiping a golden calf in clear defiance of the Lord's commands. This sinfulness is what made Pharaoh the wicked man that he was, but this sinfulness is also what makes Israel the stiff-necked, rebellious people that they are. It's the same sinfulness. But the Lord is faithful to keep His promises to his people, and he commits himself again to Israel through a renewal of his covenant with them. And though the promise of a land of their own is presented as the primary gift to his people, the true gift is the gift of his presence. And this is what our text today will cover, the provisions for his presence among his people, the building of the tabernacle. 
And as we look together at our text today, my hope is that we will see that our greatest problem is not our lack of opportunity, and it is not the harm done to us by others. It is not some form of imagined oppression. Our greatest problem is our own sin. And the only hope that we have for the resolution of that problem is the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. So let's look together first at Exodus 35 verses 1, 2, and 3, where we will see a reaffirmation of rest. If you got one of our sermon listening guides this morning in one of our bulletins or from the back table, you'll see we have three points, and that is our first one, reaffirmation of rest. So let's read together Exodus 35 verses 1 through 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. The placement of this reaffirmation of the Sabbath command seems like an odd thing to include here. Back in chapter 34, which we covered last week, the Lord gives a list of covenant requirements, and the Sabbath is there. But there's also other commands in that list, and we do not get a narration of any of those requirements being given to the people here. We only get a narration of Sabbath being reaffirmed for them. So the question that we should ask is why? Why do we see this taking place in this way? I think there are two main things that we can see from this. First, I think we're seeing a kind of reset in the narrative. We're seeing a kind of reset. Remember, this building of the tabernacle that the Israelites are about to undertake, it hasn't been a given for the last few chapters. Because, as I mentioned earlier, while Moses was on the mountain receiving the law, Israel was at the bottom of the mountain having an idolatry party. Well, if you look back at chapter 31, the last thing that the Lord says to Moses before sending him down the mountain to deal with Israel's sin was an explanation of the Sabbath command. It's the very last thing he tells Moses. And so here, now that the covenant has been renewed, we see Moses conveying that very last thing to the people of Israel. To drive this point home, Moses hits two of the same emphases here that the Lord does in chapter 31. The first one being that the Sabbath is holy. That the Sabbath is holy. It is unique. It is set apart. It is different from all the other days of the week. It is specifically set apart for the Lord. It's His day. Now, all the days are God's days. Let's be really clear. They're all His. But He says, you, for six days of the week, go about your business. Go to work. Enjoy yourself. Have a party, whatever it may be. Do those things. But the seventh day of the week, that day is mine. It's mine. And it is to be set aside, it is to be made holy for worship 
and for rest. For worship and for rest. This is significant. We're going to talk more about it in a minute as far as the placement of it. But Moses emphasizes here that the Sabbath is holy. He also emphasizes the fact that those who violate the Sabbath shall be put to death. In chapter 31, where the Lord gives the Sabbath command, the Lord says, those who violate the Sabbath shall be put to death. And here in chapter 35, as Moses gives it to the people, he also emphasizes that if you work on the Sabbath, you will die. Now, to some of us, this might seem like an extreme response. Why is this command so serious that breaking it necessitates being killed? Why is this a death penalty worthy command? Well, first of all, the decrees of the Lord are serious. Anything that the Lord says, do this, our response should be, yes, Lord, not why. This is a constant battle that we fight with our children. Those of us who have children, right? We give our children instructions, and the first thing they want to say is, why? Or, I don't want to. Or, why didn't you ask my brother to do it? Or my sister to do it? And we tell our children, no, when mom and dad give you an instruction, there is only one correct response. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I heard a whisper over here. It wasn't one of mine. That's the only correct response. And so because this is the Lord, the God of the whole universe, saying, keep the Sabbath day, of course it's worthy of death. But also, not keeping the Sabbath illustrates something about your heart. Because here's the deal. Refusing to keep the Sabbath is ultimately an attempt to either refuse to worship God or to circumvent, his, circumvent God's decrees in order to increase your own profit or enjoyment. That's what it means to break the Sabbath. Either you're saying, I don't care about the worship of God, or you're saying, listen, making money is more important to me than obeying the Lord's commands. Or you're saying, my own personal satisfaction and enjoyment in this world is more important to me than obeying the Lord's commands. And what that does is it demonstrates a lack of the fear of God within us. It's essentially us thumbing our nose at the Lord and saying, I'm not going to do it, and you're not going to make me. And so the Lord tells the people of Israel that enforcement of this law comes down to the state putting to death those who work on the Sabbath. And so when we talk about this reset, what we're really recognizing is that by giving this specific command to the people, it is a way of saying the Lord has forgiven us and thus it is time to move forward. It's almost as though the events of chapters 32, 33, and 34 never happened. We're going back 
to what it was before you screwed everything up. But, if you remember some of the narrative points of that story, Moses, when he came down the mountain, he broke the tablets that the Lord had made and written on for him. And so Moses, before he went back up onto the mountain in chapter 34, he has to remake tablets that the Lord then writes on. And so those tablets are always going to be not quite what they were the first time. There's no real way to erase what happened in Israel's sin. There's no way to really erase it. But this is the Lord essentially saying, we're going to carry on through it, but it forever colors the tabernacle and later the temple with this understanding of Israel is this close to messing everything up with their sin. They're this close. So that's the first thing that I think we're seeing is that it's a kind of reset. The second thing that I think we're seeing here is that it is a show of the faithful response of the Israelites to the Lord's judgment. My children really enjoy listening to the Little House on the Prairie books. We listen to them in the van as we're driving, we go on trips. We might just be driving down to my mom's house, which is literally seven minutes from door to door, and my kids say, can we put on Little House on the Prairie? They love listening to it. And I didn't really read those books when I was a kid. I'm unfamiliar with them. But one of the things that always stands out to me as a man living in 2023, driving a van with air conditioning, living in a house with air conditioning and electricity, is as I listen to the recounting of these people's lives, I think about how hard it was to live in that time. How much work they had to do just to simply not die. All of their daily chores were of vital importance. Because if they didn't go, say, milk the cow, the cow might get sick, and then the cow dies, and then you're in a lot of trouble. All of these things that they were doing, they had to do because if they didn't do them for literally one day, things could snowball out of control and they would all be dead. Every day it was like this. And we need to understand that that was about a people living in a time period where there were towns and things like that where they could sometimes go and get things. Israel is out in the wilderness there's not a city that they can go to where there's a market. There certainly isn't a Walmart. And so for them to live, they have to work. And here's the Lord saying, yes, work for six days. But one of those days don't work. And so for them to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to not work, is for them, that's them responding in faith to the Lord. They're saying, Lord, okay, those daily chores that I'm supposed to do, I'm not going to do them. I'm going to trust you to take care of us. They are not even to light a fire in their homes. If it's cold outside, better bundle up. They could get dressed. That was allowed. But they were not to do work. To obey this command is to place their fate in the hands of the Lord. Further, as they're about to begin construction on the tabernacle, 
there's very likely to be both confusion and temptation involved. First of all, confusion in that the Lord said the Sabbath is set aside for worship. The building of the tabernacle is for worship. Thus, on the Sabbath, we should continue doing the work of building out the tabernacle because it's for worship. That's the confusion. And then there's the temptation. Remember what has just happened. If you are, say, an average Israelite, you might think to yourself, listen, we better get this tabernacle built as fast as we can because the Lord might change his mind, we might screw things up, and he might say, okay, I'm done this time. And so there's likely temptation there to say, we got to get it done quick before somebody screws this up. To obey the Sabbath is to trust the promises of the Lord. To trust that he will care for his people. To trust that he will remain with Israel. It is to believe that he will be faithful even when we are faithless. That's what the Sabbath is. It is a physical temporal, earthly display, outward display of our faith in the promises of God. And that trust, that faith is on full display in the next section where we see the Israelites demonstrating obedience from the heart. That's our second point this morning, obedience from the heart. I'm going to read four and five, and we're going to hit a couple other points in this section. But I'm going to start with 4 and 5, which says this. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Before construction can begin on the tabernacle, the materials must be collected and the builders and crafters must be willing to work. If you remember previously, the Lord told Moses that there were going to be two particular men who he had given a special giftedness, and they were going to be the primary ones who were going to build out the implements, and they were going to oversee the work. That was what they were going to do. But it was going to require a lot more people than just those two guys. And it was going to require a lot of materials. If you remember back to the description of how these things were to be made, they were going to be made out of fine wood and overlaid with gold. Some of these things were going to be made of pure gold. And they were not small things. They were large things made out of pure gold. They had fancy, expensive stones that were going to be set in these things. And all of a sudden, it becomes crystal clear why, when Israel was on their way out of Egypt... The Lord told them, go to your neighbors and whatever you like, tell them you want it and they'll give it to you. Because it was not for Israel's personal gain. It was for the Lord's tabernacle. It was for the priestly garments. But what did Israel do? Well, they took a lot of their gold and they made an idol with it. And so now the Lord is calling upon Israel to give for these things. But it is an offering of the willing. It's not a compulsory thing. 
The Lord could certainly have said to Israel, give me all your gold. Give me all your fine linens. He could have certainly said that. He doesn't. He says, through Moses, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. The Lord does not desire worship that is done out of obligation. He does not desire worship that's done out of obligation. This is a repeated problem that we find throughout the Old Testament. And it comes to a head, particularly in the book of Malachi, where the Lord says that he would rather the priests shut the doors of the temple and go home than to offer in vain polluted sacrifices. They were just going through the motions. They were not willingly worshiping God. They were just doing what the word said. The word says offer sacrifices. Okay, well, this guy brought a three-legged cow for the sacrifice. Oh, well, guess that's good enough. We're offering a sacrifice. And the Lord says in Malachi, no, this is not good enough. What the Lord desires is those who worship him from their heart. Those who willingly want to worship him. And so what what does the Lord do? The Lord changes the hearts of his people that they would desire him. You've heard me talk before from the pulpit. You've heard me teach in theology class that the issue that we, that humanity has, is that our hearts are dead. We are not deep inside seeking the Lord. The Bible tells us that in the book of Romans. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. I don't know how much more explicit you can be. Every single human being who has ever been born, save one, has a dead heart and cannot and will not give anything to God willingly. It is only by the work of the Lord, that our hearts are turned toward him. Excuse me. And we see that on display here. The same hearts that danced around a golden calf are now giving of their riches and their abilities in order to serve the Lord. If you skip down to to verse 20 of of chapter 35, it says this. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, and everyone who processed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tan ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution, and everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Over and over again, the text tells us 
those who, whose hearts were stirred, whose spirits stirred them. A free will offering. It is important for us to understand that even in this, the Lord having chosen Israel as his people, even in this, he does not force them to give. He moves their hearts that they would give willingly. He wants them to give of their own accord. And what it shows us is the true repentance of the people. They have truly repented of their sin with the golden calf. Because where before they all gave their gold to Aaron to make an idol, now they are giving all of their gold to build the tabernacle. And so then for the next few chapters, we are given the play-by-play of the construction. And they're building this and they're sowing that and they're making this and making that. And we come all the way to the end of chapter 39 where we see the culmination of their work. We have spoken before of the tabernacle being a sort of restoration of Eden. The direction that it's placed in and the way you have to enter it and all of those sorts of things. It's kind of a a restoration of the Garden of Eden. And we can see glimpses of that in the language that is used here. I want you to to compare what we see at the end of the creation account. I'm going to read that here for us to what we find here. Genesis 1, 28 through 31 says this. This is after the Lord has created mankind and it says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And I want you to compare that to what we find here at the end of chapter 39. We're going to read verses 32 through 43. Exodus 39, beginning in verse 32, it says this. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses its tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tan ram skins and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, and the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, its, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, it, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. So we see 
just as the Lord saw what he created, Moses saw the work. It was all brought before him to see. Moses saw that they had done it. And it is implied that it was good. You see, we're told in the creation account, the Lord had done these things and saw that it was good. Well, here in this text, it's implied for us that it was good because it was done as the Lord had commanded it. That's what makes it good. They had done exactly according to God's command. And then we also see Moses blessing the people in the same way that at the end of the creation account, we see the Lord blessing the people. This is kind of a restoration of the Garden of Eden. However, it's still not the same. In the garden, there was no sin. There was free communion between the Lord and humanity. Now, there's restriction there. But it's something. This is kind of the climax of the first two books of the Bible. Because since Genesis 3, mankind has been trying to be back in the presence of the Lord. And they have been failing. And now here, they're finally there. And before we move past this, we're talking about obedience from the heart. I want, to no- I want you to notice the emphasis on obedience throughout this section. We see repeated usage of the term, as the Lord had commanded. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of the taking of the offering until the completion of the tabernacle, we see that phrase, or a similar phrase, as the Lord had commanded. We see it used 17 times. Remember, Israel almost lost everything because they did not do as the Lord had commanded. Now... Now that their covenant has been renewed and the Lord's promises are restored to them, what are they doing? They are doing what the Lord commanded. 17 times. Israel had sinned greatly and now they are obeying his commands. Brothers and sisters, this is the evidence of faith. Obedience to God's commands. That's the evidence of faith. Make no mistake, I'm not saying that is faith. It's not faith. It is the evidence of faith. In the same way that if you plant what you believe to be an apple tree, and then it grows up and it starts putting out pears, you know what you know then? Well, you don't think, I got a special apple tree. No, you think, well, I must have planted a pear tree. Fruit bears witness to what kind of tree it is. Obeying God's word bears witness to whether or not you have faith. It shows what kind of tree you are. That's what we're seeing here. And listen, I want you, I want you to hear me extremely clearly when I say this. Because this is so, so important. A refusal to obey or to submit to God's word is an indication that faith is not present. It does not take away faith that is present. It shows that faith isn't there. We need to understand this. 
If you believe you can have Jesus and do whatever you feel like, that's not faith in the true Jesus. You have made an idol for yourself. Israel here in these chapters, really for the first time, is obeying the Lord, acting according to faith. And so it brings us into chapter 40 of the book of Exodus where we see the glory of the Lord. It's our third and final point this morning. The glory of the Lord. They have brought all of these implements to Moses. And now this tabernacle that they are going to construct is going to be the new place where God is going to meet with his people. And we see this here at the beginning of chapter 40. I want you to listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The tabernacle of the tent of meeting. If you remember, the tent of meeting is where Moses has been meeting with the Lord. Out, far outside of camp. He has a special tent that he goes to and he meets with the Lord there. That's the tent of meeting. And by calling this the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, the Lord is saying that tent is no more. No longer will you go outside the camp to meet with me. You will meet with me here in the midst of the people. That first thing is being superseded by this new thing, this earthly copy of a heavenly reality. And so then, going forward in chapter 40, the Lord gives instructions for them to do it, and then Moses does it. And there, at the end of verse 33, it says, So Moses finished the work. And then we find this in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The Lord's presence in their midst is so vital to their existence that he communicates to them according to it. While, when it is still on the tabernacle, they are staying put. But when it moves, it's time to move. They don't have to wait for a special word from the Lord. They just look out their tent. Oh, the pillar's not there. Pack it up, folks. Time to move on. And it is fully visible to all of Israel throughout the remainder of the Exodus. For the rest of their time, going from this mountain to the promised land, they can all see it. And as magnificent as the culmination of this story is, there is still a problem that looms over the people of Israel. The problem of sin. And that still has continued. Even the continual presence of the Lord in their midst through the tabernacle does not resolve it. Because what does it say in verse 35? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
So that tent of meeting that Moses could go to, he no longer can. He can't. Why? Because of sin. I mentioned earlier that there was an emphasis on the people obeying the Lord in the text. And where that emphasis is most prominently seen is in the creation of the garments of the priests, where it is used seven times. As they are making the garments for the priests, it says, and they made this according to what the Lord had said to Moses. This is because what we ultimately need for our forgiveness is someone to offer atonement for us. That's what we ultimately need. We don't need a fancy tent. We don't need golden implements. What we need is for someone to offer atonement on our behalf. Immediately after this scene at the end of the book of Exodus, moving into the book of Leviticus, the Lord gives eight chapters worth of instructions for sacrifices. Eight chapters. It's the very next thing we find. Moses wrote these books as a unit. And so here, the tabernacle is built, the glory of the Lord is here, and then for the next eight chapters, God says, here's how you offer sacrifices. Because you need these things to live. And then, in chapter 9, we find the sacrifices being made according to the Lord's instructions. And it is only then that we find this. In, Exodus, in Leviticus 9, 22 through 24, it says this. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So even their obedience in, build, in giving and building of this tabernacle was not sufficient for them to really have his presence in that way. It required sacrifice. And so here at the end of these chapters, we see these sacrifices being made and only then do Aaron and Moses go inside of the tabernacle. And it's there that a changing of the guard, so to speak, happens. No longer is Moses the one who's going to go between the people and the Lord for their atonement. It's now Aaron, the high priest. Only after atonement has been made can mankind be in the presence of the Lord. But this system is not sufficient. Because immediately after the Lord has given all these instructions for sacrifice and worship, and immediately after this atonement has been given, and I, when I say immediately, I mean literally the next two verses. We've been hearing Israel did all that the Lord had commanded. Israel did all that the Lord had commanded. All that the Lord had commanded. They were obedient, 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 obedient. Then they've done all these sacrifices according to what the Lord had commanded. And then they finally get to go in, and then the very next two verses we find this. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They had just seen what happens when you obey the commands of God. 
They saw his presence come down and fill the tabernacle. They saw him receiving their offerings, literally shooting fire out of the tabernacle and consuming the offerings. They, all the people had seen this, including Aaron's sons. And the very next thing they do is they choose to be disobedient to the Lord's commands and they die for it. Even with their newfound obedience, it takes no time for them to fall into their own way of doing things because they lack a fear of the Lord. And these are the priests doing it. It's not just the people, it's the priests doing it. What this shows us is that we have a greater need. We need a better priest. We need a priest who is not beset by sin. And we have that in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The priests that Israel had were sinful men. The Mosaic Covenant could never succeed in bringing true redemption because those who are responsible for mediating the covenant were sinful men just like everyone else. But where the Israelite priests and the Mosaic covenant were sinners, the true redeemer of the people of Israel is perfect and sinless. And where Israel was restricted and restrained from going into the presence of the Lord, we can go into the throne room of God. And if you remember the construction and layout and implementation of the tabernacle, that's the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go. And even then, he had to be especially clean or else he'd die. Now, every single one of us can congregate inside the Holy of Holies if we so desire. And we can do so without fear. We can go freely with confidence and boldness because Christ has accomplished our redemption. And so the question before every one of us today, as we come to the end of the book of Exodus, is do you know Christ? Do you truly know the great high priest who has fulfilled all of these things perfectly? That in him we have the presence of God. Do you know him? Some of you would say, yes, I've known him for a really long time. But then if you were to stop and examine your heart, there might be cause for doubt there. There might be cause for question. The Bible tells us that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We must truly judge and rightly judge ourselves. Seeking out whether or not we are an apple tree or a pear tree pretending to be an apple tree. And so today, as we consider the entirety of the book of Exodus, my encouragement to all of us is to remember that we are great sinners. 
and that Christ is a great Savior. And that if you do not know Jesus, today can be the day that you give your life to him willingly as the Lord has moved your heart, trusting in him to accomplish your redemption. And so if that's you today, I want to encourage you to seek me out so that we can talk together, that I can pray for you, that we can rejoice in what the Lord has done. But for the rest of us, let us rest in the finished work of Christ. We don't have to pack up a tabernacle and move it every time we go on a journey. We don't have to slaughter animals and throw blood on an altar. We rest in the perfect blood of a perfect Savior. Praise the Lord that the end of Exodus is not the end of the story, but that Christ has come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the goodness of your perfect redemption that you have accomplished for us in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray today that our hearts and our minds would be focused upon him and him alone that we would rest in him and not in our own work, that we would see no goodness in ourselves, Lord, but only in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to rightly examine our own hearts, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And Lord, if there are any here today who do not know Jesus, Lord, please save them today. Give them a willing heart to turn to him in faith and be saved. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.